0: Well, I want to start this morning with a little bit of a thought experiment. Um, before I start, um, though, I just want to say these, uh, what I'm about to say in no way, shape, or form reflects what I actually think about the subject. I'm not going to give you my opinion on the, the topic of what I'm, I'm going to kind of lead into this morning, um, but I want you to be engaged with this thought experiment. I want you to be engaged with the sermon, um, and my hope is that you'd be able to apply scripture and apply the, the principles of scripture that we see um, to just a myriad of different circumstances um, and a myriad of different uh, situations that we kind of come across day to day, um, and so if anyone walks in late, it is your job. I'm going to give you license to talk during the sermon to kind of like call them over and tell them, "Hey, this is just a thought experiment. It's not his, his opinion." Um, okay. With that said, um, here it is. What if, what if we had objective knowledge that Brett Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh? Um, actually assault, sexually assaulted Christine Ford. Like don't get don't get mad, don't overly dissect the way I asked that question and try to assume my opinion based on how I'd said like what if versus like oh he did it. Like this is just a question. What if we had objective knowledge and could say yes, he did it. He he did what he's being accused of. Should in that in that instance should Kavanaugh should that disqualify Kavanaugh as a as an appointee to this judgeship? Or is he still a viable candidate? So think about that for a second. Is he, is he disqualified for something he did you know, 36 years ago um, in his youth? It, should that disqualify him because of the heinousness uh, of sexual assault? Well, Let's ask something a little less controversial. What if he had done this a year ago? What if, he, what if, he, if this was not an accusation that was 36 years old, but this was a, an accusation that was one year old? Does that disqualify him? I think we can probably say in one, in one voice, yeah, like that, that would prove that he's not living a life that is worthy of the call that he's, re- he's receiving. It's not, he's not living a, a life that is worthy to be appointed as a judge. What if it was something not so heinous, though? What if it was like he had you know, 20 unpaid parking tickets? Does that disqualify him as a judge? What if it wasn't something that was illegal, but it was just something that like, maybe he just drank a little too much on the weekends? You know, he didn't go overboard. He didn't get plastered, but he just got a little too tipsy on like every weekend. He liked he liked drinking just a little too much. Does that disqualify him as a judge? You know, we have to ask these these questions. You know, some of this stuff doesn't really exist in such a legal gray area as much as it does like a socially acceptable gray area. We have to ask these questions and really determine. Okay, what does it look like to have a life that is worthy to be appointed to the Supreme Court to be a Supreme Court justice? Um, Matt Bai is a, uh, an. Uh, ...journalist for Yahoo News. It's where I get most of my news, which is probably a terrible place, but anyway. um, He wrote an article recently. He called it, What Kavanaugh Deserves and What We Deserve From Him. Um, And in, in that article, he says this, "...none of us ought to be defined by the ugliest moments of our lives. We are not the worst things we have ever done. Character demands context. The moral arc of a lifetime matters. Not everything is equally relevant." Um, and add to the emphasis that these are not my thoughts. He goes on and, uh, he goes on and condemns Kavanaugh for other reasons um, and not just for this, this accusation. So you can't pin me because of the quote I used. Um, this is what he said. But the, the overwhelming, the overwhelming um, point of this, the, the, the overarching heart of the conversation is people are asking, is he worthy? Is he worthy of this, uh, this appointment that he's received or is, might receive? Is he worthy of being confirmed as a Supreme Court justice? See that a judgeship should confer onto him status and reputation? It should, uh, it should elevate him above his peers. He'd be on the highest court of land. It should confer onto him something, but it also should confirm something about him. It should confirm that he already had elements of these, uh, of these qualities already. He should already be a, a man who would be considered worthy to be in this position. And so we ask the question, is the man worthy of the position? Now, you might have a, a ton of thoughts on the subject. I, I know I do. I've, I've been following it fairly closely um, just because it, it's just interesting. It's pervasive in every, like every article. Every time I open up Yahoo or Google or wherever else, it's like 15 Kavanaugh articles until I get to something I'm actually inter- interested in. Um, but I read those anyway. Uh, but, he, he, like, is he worthy and then we can kind of backtrack a little bit and we can ask ourselves, are we worthy? Are we worthy of the call that we've been given? Right. So, you know, a judgeship is a high calling. And a, a judgeship on the Supreme Court is like the highest calling you can really get other than like the President of the United States and our country. But like that, that is a, a lifetime commitment to, to uphold justice. But I would say that our calling, yours and my calling today right now, is actually higher than that. Our calling is to be the sons and daughters of the God who created the universe and inherit all that he, is, all that he has. That's a pretty high calling, right? That's a pretty amazing calling. And so I think that's a higher one than, than this judgeship that we're, we're debating endlessly. But the question then becomes, okay, what makes someone worthy? Do we deserve it? And so the question I ask is, what is, what is required of us to be worthy of that call? Our scripture this morning comes from um, Ephesians 4. It's going to be one, verses 1 through 6. You can find it in your bulletin. Um, as you turn there, though, if, you, if you're using your Bible, I'd like to remind you this is God's Word. Um, every, you know, every time I read this, it's like this is the thing that can change your heart and your mind. This is the thing that can speak to your life uh, and, and change your life. Um, so I, I encourage you, I exhort you to, to listen well. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord and in all, Let's pray. Uh, Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that you've given us to, to read your word and hear your word. I pray that you um, shape our hearts through it, that you open our eyes um, help us to, to see what it is you would have us learn from it this morning. In your son's precious and holy name I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so what does worthiness have to do with the passage? What does it have to do with the thought experiment? Why did I spend so much time talking about Brett Kavanaugh? Well, I think in, here in Ephesians 4, um, we're, it's, it's, all, it's all about worthiness. Are you worthy? Live in a manner worthy. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And Paul is exhorting us to live a life that is worthy of our salvation. Now, he's not saying that you have to live in a life to receive salvation. No, he's saying you've received salvation, now walk in a manner worthy of it. You know, and the entire book of Ephesians is kind of broken down into two sections the first three chapters, he's basically just laying out this great doctrinal argument. He's putting the cross on display. He's saying, look, this is what God has done for you. Look how passive you were in your own justification. Like God saved you. He did, he did all of the work. He's done everything for you. Um, this, there's a summary verse there in Ephesians 2.8. I'm sure you've read numerous times. Um, I actually preached on I think the first time I, pre- I preached here. But, for grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, we've been given this great call. God has done such a great thing for us. And now the exhortation that Paul is making here, starting in chapter 4, is, okay, God has done this for you. God loves you, and he's done this amazing thing for you. So now go live in a manner worthy. Go live in a manner, a manner worthy of the call that you've been given. You know, and the call that we've been given, simply put, for the church, and specifically for each and every one of us, for Christians, is we are to be a showcase for the rest of the world for God's glory. We are to be a showcase for the glory of God. That's Paul's point. It's to spur us on to holiness. He gives us this great doctrinal argument. Like I said, he put the cross on display. He shows us all about what God has done for us. And the whole point is to say here in verse 4 and onward, okay, now go and live it out. Now go and be holy. Love God so much that you, that you are going to live in a manner worthy of your call. And honestly, if, you, if we really think about it in a, in a sense, we can really say that the Bible, the entire Bible, is about our holiness. It's about pointing us to, to holiness. It's about inspiring holiness and producing holiness in its readers. Paul's wanting to produce us uh, holiness in us. He wants to encourage us to be holy, to show us how to be holy. He gives us instructions, which is nice. We need that. Uh, he, he drives us forward. It, it all is about our holiness. It's all about following Christ. And so how does Paul, in our passage this morning, suggest we accomplish this? He, he kind of gives us four ways that we can, we can accomplish holiness um, and I think you can guess them. First one is humility. He, wants, he says, live with humility. Then live with gentleness. Then live with patience. And then finally he says, live unified with God in the church. That's a little bit of a paraphrase. But live unified with God in the church. Now before we start looking at these individually, I, I, there's a great Tim Keller quote I want to share with you uh, from, from his commentary on Ephesians. He says this uh, about specifically these four things. These attitudes are probably especially challenging for those of us from the more privileged middle classes. Our upbringing may mean that we don't struggle so much with violence, theft, or promiscuity, but find humility, gentleness, and patience very difficult indeed. This is because our Western culture indulges our self-promoting view that being opinionated, aggressive, and ambitious for ourselves and our families is a good thing. But such arrogance is really a sin that strangles the growth of a church. Do you get that? Like, our, this is going to be a difficult situ- This is going to be a difficult thing for us. We don't often think about humility. We don't often think about uh, about patience or gentleness. These are these are the these are the sins that you know the the average covenant kid struggles with. And so, I think it's it's important that we pay careful attention to these because these are the things that Paul says is going to make us worthy of the call that we've received. So the first thing is, is humility. Uh, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on humility because I think we, this is actually probably one that we do talk about a lot. Um, y'all have all heard the great C.S. Lewis quote, the, the humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Like it's the good old cliche, C.S. Lewis, like everyone's heard that one. And if someone ever like brought that to you as some kind of new revelation, you're probably like, oh, that's cute. Um. And so I'm not bringing it some kind of new revelation. Um, it's, it's more just to say, like, let's really think about that, that phrase for a second. Like, it's brilliant. Like, it's, it's, it's such a deep, true statement that we really should think about. It. And as I thought about it this week, it, the, the truth of the, the matter just was really affirmed in me. Um, and I, was like, I started thinking about it. I was like, okay, how does Christ reflect that statement? And I would say, man, he, he did it perfectly, Right. The only man to walk this earth who could have walked around and thought only of himself and had not been a sin, he could have came to earth and demanded everything from us, he was God, right? Like he could he could have came around, he could have come around, demanded everything, and not been humble, and it would not have been a sin. He said, No, 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 that's not why I'm here. And he submitted himself in humility to others. He walked around humbly. Man, he was—he was tired. It didn't matter. His disciples woke him up. He calmed storms. Man, he wanted to get away from the crowds that were continually coming after him. He—he he would break away from those quiet moments that he desperately wanted. He desperately needed uh, with uh, the precious moments alone with his father. And he'd go and he'd speak to the crowds. That's humility. He thought of himself so little and thought so much of us that ultimately, when his time came, you know, he. Put himself, he, he subjected himself to death in the most brutal way possible because he thought of himself so little and thought of us so much and that's the kind of rad, radical humility um, that we're supposed to emulate, that we're supposed to imitate and it's essential to our call. Now like I said, I just wanted that, that's, that's all I got on humility. I think we hear about humility quite a bit. Um, that's actually probably one of the virtues that our culture does appreciate. We don't like practicing it but when we really meet someone humble, you're like, I like this guy. Like that, that we we hear about humility a lot, but one of the the virtue we probably hear least about is gentleness. We don't hear about gentleness too often. And so we we have to ask the question, well, what does it look like to live a gentle life? Uh, And, you know, before we camp here for a second, I want to look at um, what it doesn't mean. What does gentleness not mean? Well, gentleness does not mean weakness. You know, as a as a guy, you know, I hear, Oh yeah, I live a gentle life. Like I'm just like, nah, no, I'm good. Um, just because like you you immediately think of the the weak willed or weak men who kind of just kind of piddle around or or you know, you get the whole who wears the pants in that family comments and things like that where you just don't you don't think about that and you think that's gentleness. You think being weak being weak and gentle are the same thing and it's not. It's not the same thing. You know, when Paul considers his ministry to the Thessalonians um, in Thessalonians 2.8, he says, uh, specifically, he says, I, I was gentle with you, like a mother nursing her children. How many men in here want to compare themselves to a mother nursing her children? Anybody? Nobody? I don't think so. Uh, like, but that, that was the, the radical uh, gentleness, the radical humility that Paul showed, that he, he compared himself to a mother nursing her children. You know, and it's not about letting people run over you. That's not what Paul is calling us to. Gentleness is not just being a pushover all the time. You know, in the same breath that he compares himself to a mother nursing her children, like he also compares himself to a father exhorting his children. And what's fun, fun about this is he's actually causing, he actually calls He he says, I was like a father exhorting to you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Same point he's making here in our passage. So in the same breath, he says, I can be gentle with you like a mother nursing her children, but I can also be stern with you and and, and speak truth to you like a father exhorting his children. Right. Gentleness should not come at the cost of truth. That's the big thing there. Paul did it. He, He kind of walked that tight rope saying, I'm going to be gentle with you. I'm going to choose my words carefully. I'm going to speak love into your situation. But it's not going to come at the cost of truth. I'm still going to be like a father exhorting his children. I'm still going to love you and share with you the truth of the, of the, the Bible, even if it offends you sometimes. Because I love you. You know, in our culture, living gently is, is a bit like, a bit more like walking a tightrope than maybe it, it was in Paul's time. Um, you lean a little too far one way, and you end up condoning sin. You end up, you end up just not dealing with sin at, at, at hand. You say, oh, well, you know, we'll get to that. We don't really need to deal with that. I don't need to call people out on their sin because I, you know, I just want them to know that I love them. And that that's that's leaning too far one way. But then you lean too far the other way, and then something happens where you, you come across as just legalistic, and you come across as, as not loving and not caring, and ultimately you end up losing the audience with whoever you're talking with, whoever you're engaging with, um, and, and, and then they don't listen to you. And you lose your opportunity to share the gospel. You lose your opportunity to be in a relationship with that person. You know, a great case study for this is, our, is actually our original illustration, Kavanaugh. I don't know how many of you probably have had conversations about the situation at hand. Um, I've had probably a dozen. We, Rebecca and I just were in Las Vegas to visit her family. And I was talking to her, her mom about it for extended lengths of time. We ended up agreeing on most of it, but... You know, I've had a bunch of conversations about Kavanaugh, what does this accusation mean, and all this other mess, and again, I'm not giving you my opinion from the pulpit, you can ask me later, um, Rebecca will probably hate you for it, but um, you can ask me later, um, but we can actually take the, the principles of gentleness and humility and apply it to our relationships and our conversations about these sensitive topics. Right? We can take these principles and actually in a, in a very tangible, real way look at the situation at hand. It's such a big thing that's blowing up in our country and well, it only stands to get bigger this coming week as they testify. And we can, we can look at these sensitive topics and say, okay, I know Christ can speak into this. I know Christ has spoken to the situation. Now how can, I, how can I be an instrument for Him? Well, first off, I think if we're practicing gentleness, it starts like this. You, you need to listen. We need to listen. That's a big part of being gentle is actually listening um, and, and loving the person and hearing their thoughts, hearing their feelings, hearing their, their opinions and understanding exactly what they're saying when they when they speak about uh, about these things. You know, James tells us we need to be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry. Like this is that's the point of being gentleness. You are slow to speak. You're not listening just so you can get your own opinion out. But you're actually listening to hear the other person's thoughts. You know, you know, this is where humility feeds into gentleness. To be gentle, you first must be humble. Because a humble person, or a prideful person, is not going to let someone just talk for hours. Is not going to actually listen to anyone. You're just going to listen so you can actually get your point out, that you can get your opinion out there. You listen so you can give your opinions about things and 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 make certain points and make your arguments heard. But a, a truly humble person will listen, will care, and will wait and get to the heart of different issues. They'll get to the heart of different issues, and then they take the next step and they start choosing their words carefully so they can communicate love and truth at the same time. They can communicate love and truth. So you have to listen first so you can get to the heart behind the issue. You have to listen first so you can really love, love the person, understand where they're coming from, understand their points. And then you then are slow to speak and you, you choose your words carefully that you can communicate both love and truth to that person. And it doesn't just stop there. We actually have to take that a little bit further. And this is where it gets hard. This is where it gets interesting. This is where you, you may, may or may not uh, agree with me, but that's okay. But we actually have to start thinking not just about our, the words we use, but about how the words that we use are going to be perceived. It doesn't just stop at using the right words. It doesn't just stop at using truthful words or gentle words. You have to just think and think about how those words are going to come across, how the other person that you're talking to might perceive those words. You have to, and that comes from listening and knowing the person, and loving the person. And we have to we have to stop, and we have to think two steps back, and say, okay, I want to speak truth, but I also want to speak love. You know, Romans 12 um, says this. It says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And what that means is that if it's possible for you to step back to listen to someone and to really think about, to carefully choose your words, then we ought to do it. You know, you feed this principle back into how we ought to emulate Christ's humility. And I think you have a great argument for how Christians ought to bend over backwards, not just to share the gospel, but just for the chance to share the gospel. Just for the opportunity, just for the opportunity to share and to to be a part of someone's life. You know, that's that is what we're about. It's not just about sharing the gospel. Be like getting in, being in a relationship with someone in such a way and communicating love to them in such a way that it opens up opportunities for you to then share the gospel. You to speak more truth into their lives. And that's what we're looking for. That's what we're trying to do. You know, I wish I had a magic bullet. I wish I had a magic bullet that said, OK, just do this. And this is going to work every time in every situation. Um, but we, we don't have that. We don't have that because everyone has a nuanced situation. Your coworkers are but how you interact with your coworkers is probably different than how you work, interact with your neighbors, and that's definitely different than how you interact with your family. But living out these principles and living out these principles is going to look differently in each of those situations. And I want to encourage you. I want to exhort you to say, "Okay, I, you know, yes, this is right. So how do I do it? How do I live gently and and humbly with with those people in my life?" But I think, I think this, is, this will help some. I think you know, thinking about this will help some. Is if, we start, if you just start with a desire. Start with a desire for an opportunity to share the gospel with people. If you start with that desire, then you'll make long strides to living humbly, to living gently. Just want to share the gospel in, those per, in that person's life. Love that person that you want to see them come to know the truth love them and share with them and start with the desire for just the opportunity to share the gospel. And that will make, that will make all this much easier. Well, point three, patience. We, we also are called to be patient people. Um, and we're not talking about run of the mill patience that we teach our children. Right? This isn't like, hey, just be patient. They'll be done with that toy and you can play with it. Or you know, if I'm just patient, surely I'll get that, that promotion. Or if I'm just patient, I'll get this. It's not patience for the end of something. You know the biblical definition. It would probably be better expressed if, it, if we said long-suffering. Be a long-suffering people, people who would sit for hours on end just listening to coworkers or neighbors vent about their the hardships of their life. Pe- people who would sit for hours and listen to people s- talk about you know the, the Kavanaugh situation and you just disagree with every word that comes out of their mouth, but you love them and you want to be able to speak truth in their life, and so you sit there and you're patient and you listen. And sure, maybe you never get an opportunity to speak in that situation, but you're, you're patient, and, you, and you're communicating through your listening that you love them, that you care for them. Being patient means you're willing to sometimes be taken advantage of. People are going, to be, are going to take advantage of patient people. It is how it just is, That's part of life. That's sin in our world. Uh, patient people are people who give when it hurts to give, and they keep on giving, knowing that ultimately it will produce a fruit in their life. Uh, patient people are people who spend time and energy helping neighbors on Saturday, um, even when you want to be sitting and watching the Clemson game or the Alabama game or the Auburn game or where's Ken Georgia game or Erica Georgia game. Um, whatever, whatever it is that you want to do, a patient person is someone who's going to invest time and energy day after day, week after week, month after month waiting for an opportunity to share the gospel. You know, patience actually, it's, it's amazing. This is kind of like the, the capstone of the other two virtues because a patient person is the person who will humbly sit and will listen to someone and will care for someone who will, who will be very gentle in the choosing of their words, who will, who will speak truth in love to someone and really care about other people. Um, and then when that person spits in their face... And who calls them names and makes fun of their mom or whatever else it is? They can wake up tomorrow morning and start all over. Teachers, that actually might be more applicable to you. When when the kid spits on you uh, because you just want to love them, and you, the patience just get you get you through to the next day, and let you start all over, let you start all over, and care about that person and do it all over again. And, and love them more and listen to them more and speak truth into their life more and, and go through the pain and the struggle of, of choosing words more. It's the capstone that kind of uh, brings them all together. Patience isn't about just that one instance where you're like, okay, if I just listen to this person for an hour, then I'll get to share my opinion. That's not patience at all. No, the, the Bible, the patience that, that Paul is calling to us is to be a long-suffering people. To, to wait and to listen and to love and hopefully along the way you're sharing Christ, you're showing Christ, and that ultimately that hopefully that person will come to know Jesus through that. If, if not, that's okay. You're going to be long-suffering with them anyway. And you're going to spread the glory of God to them whether you want, whether they want it or not. Now the fourth thing is unity. But I think unity is a little unique here because unity is kind of how we apply the rest of the other three. It's how we kind of get to the other three, in fact. You know, um, John Piper, when he when, uh, he gave a sermon on Ephesians 4 here, he said this. He said, this is specifically about unity. This is how we get there. The knowledge of our high call should make us feel very low. It shows our true condition in relation to God's holiness. How can anyone operate out of conceit when they are operating out of a knowledge of God? When we key off Him and His sovereignty we operate out of humility if an ant measures himself by a tower he will not boast over the flea but if he only measures himself by fleas and other ants then he surely will be puffed up the the unity that we we are called to starts with a knowledge of god it starts with knowing what god has done for you it starts knowing where you started in the in the sin and your in the death that sin brings, and now God has made you alive, in it, and you know God, you know what He's done, you know how He's uh, entered into your life. And so it starts with the knowledge of God. And then we ask the question well, where do I get knowledge of God? Well, and that is church. That is in fellowship with other believers. Not just Sunday morning, I think Sunday morning is probably the most important time, uh, but it starts with being in fellowship with other believers. Coming and hearing Justin preach or Matt preach or me preach every Sunday morning, you know, going to going to fellowship times, coming to the the, the waffle lunch, eating some good meals, but you know, also spending time and talking with people and sharing sharing life with each other. We do community groups. That's like our big fellowship thing that we do here at Grace. Is it one? We have three different groups. If you're not a part of one, I highly encourage you. Consider being in one of these groups. This is where you're going to get to discuss the sermon. You're going to get to live uh, in community with other believers. You know, the, the times and places for those, the, that's in your bulletin. I encourage you to look at that and, and consider being a part of one of those, those community groups because that's where you're going to get more uh, knowledge about God. That's where you're going to be unified with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's where you're going to learn to love Christ more. And as you grow in your knowledge of Christ, as you grow in your knowledge of God and your love for Him and His love for you, then these other things kind of fall into place. If if you're really learning about how much Christ has done for you, if you're really learning about how much God has done for you, if you're spending time in your Word and you're spending time in fellowship, then your, your position starts getting real, real low. You know, this is Piper. The knowledge of our high call should make us feel very low. It shows our true condition in relation to God's holiness. It starts you from holiness. and when, It starts you in humility. And when you, once you get that, that point, that humility down, you understand your position, you understand what God's done for you, then gentleness starts coming easier. And it's not just a one-time gentleness. It's a patient, long-suffering gentleness. And it all falls into place, and they all feed into one another. That should drive us, in that, in, and again, as, that, as that, those virtues are being uh, made in you, as you're, as you're maintaining them, as you're growing in them, it drives you to want to know Him more, and then it drives you to be more humble and more gentle and more patient. That all, all happens as you're in fellowship with one another, as you're in fellowship with other believers. So, <clears throat> this is what I want to encourage you to today, brothers and sisters in Christ. As, as you go about your week, as you go to work, as you go to, uh, to to your homes and you spend time with your families this afternoon even, I want to encourage you to walk in humility. I want to encourage you to, to speak gently with one another, to deal gently with one another and to live with patience, to be a long-suffering people, uh, serving God by serving others. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that you've given us. Thank you for um, all that you've shown us in your word and i pray that as we go about our days lord that you um that you change our hearts that you grow us in humility or that we can love people well that we think less we it's not that we think less of ourselves but we think about ourselves less like i I pray that that really rings true in our ears this morning and rings true in our hearts throughout the week that we stop thinking about ourselves and what would be best for us or what we want out of life and start thinking about others lord i pray that we can be more gentle people that we can love, we can love people. That we can want to see them learn the truth and accept the truth of your word and of your gospel. And Father, I pray that you you cause that that virtue to be brought up in us, that the, that we are more gentle people. And Father, I pray that we be more patient people, people who are long suffering, who are willing to wake up day after day, week after week, month after month, loving each other, uh, loving the, the the people around us, those who don't know you, are willing to be stomped on, to be Trample on, Lord, all for the sake of sharing your gospel. Father, I pray for the unity of grace that as we go about our days, as we're planning out our weeks, Lord, that we make time to be in fellowship with one another, that we make time to love your church and to love your people. It is in your son's precious holy name I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.